Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And I'm speaking to you from a nearly empty office in Washington, D.C., where the mayor has declared a state of emergency due to the spread of the coronavirus, COVID-19. Odds are, if you're listening to this episode when it comes out, wherever you are, you're probably in a place where officials have already closed or about to close a lot of things. New saturation for the pandemic feels like it's at an all-time high. But one thing is glaringly missing from the coverage the underlying structural reasons for why this is happening. Rob Wallace is an evolutionary biologist at the Institute for Global Studies at the University of Minnesota. For the past 25 years, he's been studying the evolution and spread of influenzas and other pathogens. He's consulted on the flu for the United Nations and the CDC, and he's the author of the book Big Farms Make Big Flu. His research shows that if you really want to understand the nature of global disease outbreaks, you have to look at global agriculture. Where are large industrial farms or monoculture plantations encroaching on forests that are home to wild animals that are the natural hosts for pathogens like Ebola and this new coronavirus? Who has pushed people off their subsistence farms deeper into forests and hinterlands that used to be able to regulate themselves before half their ecosystem was destroyed? Who is really to blame here? Rob Wallace joins us from St. Paul, Minnesota, to talk about his work on connecting pathogens to agriculture. Thanks so much, Rob. Absolutely. I'm, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, though I wish it was under other circumstances. So it seems like for as long as I've been an adult, there have been more and deadlier novel virus outbreaks. And mm. you've been writing about these epidemics for 25 years, which is... It's only slightly less long than I've been alive. So how does coronavirus fit in with a litany of recent outbreaks from Ebola to SARS to all the different animal flus? And is it just me or does it seem like they're coming faster and harder than before? You're right. I mean, they totally feel and they are indeed uh, coming fast and fiercely almost on an annual basis at this point. There's H5N1, the avian influenza that emerged in uh, 1997, SARS in 2002-2003, and we had uh, MERS, swine flu influenza 2009, Ebola 2013, and, and Zika, and uh, now we're here with coronavirus. And, and you know, we have other pathogens uh, circulating that seem to be on the verge of perhaps uh, becoming more 
serious. And right now we have African swine fever, uh, which uh, emerged out of Africa in the 50s and 60s, spilled over to Europe for a little bit. But since uh, in the last uh, three or four years, it's uh, spilled across uh, Eurasia into China and uh, has killed half of, uh, of China's hog. So on the one hand, yes, it's part of this continuum. Uh, on the other hand, this one seems to be particularly special because it's hit the right mix of uh, virulence, how much damage it does to, to humans, and infectivities, the uh, capacity to go human to human. And so uh, what were previously kind of uh, proto-pandemic diseases that didn't quite make the uh, pandemic cut, SARS or 2009, the swine flu, that did go pandemic, but it didn't have as as much of a serious connotation as as this one has. But this one uh, has that mix of infectivity and virulence uh, in a way that, without being alarmist about it, may be in a position to kill many more people than uh, some of the other ones that got us to this point. And how much of that can be chalked up to the virus itself and how much to just the way that global networks have become even closer since SARS. Oh, absolutely. I mean, those two things are very much interrelated to each other. So uh, on the one hand, those long thought that most pathogens that are very virulent, that kill their hosts really fast, cut off their own chain of transmission, meaning if you kill your host too fast, then you're not able to get into the next host. And so you die off. So, you know, we had Ebola coming out since uh, 1976, uh, would take out a village or two or a troop of gorillas. I mean, it's a gruesome thing, but uh, it was basically caught out in the hinterlands of forested Africa, and there was no thought that it would go pandemic. But what's changed here is both in uh, East Africa and West Africa and, and across the world is that pathogens that are able to make it out uh, of their hinterland origins make their way into the local um, capital and then get up on a plane and spread around the world. Their travels become much more integrated. Um, even since SARS, uh, there's something like 700% increase in travel within China, something that was able to make its way out onto the travel network. Uh, and uh, by virtue of being able to access so many uh, susceptible populations around the world so quickly, it can get away with being a, a virulent pathogen, meaning uh, it might kill people really quickly. But because the next host is already right there, it's able to keep its chain of transmission going. And, and because we're so much more integrated, pathogens that were previously unable to get out on the global stage are, are now able to do so. Yeah, I mean, there seem to be still so many open questions about the coronavirus, but you wrote this February piece about how agriculture is connected to the coronavirus. And reading it now a few weeks later, it still seems right on the money in a lot of ways, despite everything we don't know about the future of this virus. It seems like we can deduce a lot from past viruses and how they've broken out. Why don't we start off with the coronavirus at this point? A lot of attention was paid to that uh, wet market in Wuhan from which uh, it, it appears the new cases began to accumulate. And so there are a lot of exotic foods that are, are sold there. Civets, you know, you might have uh, snakes sold. You have all sorts of uh, wild animals. You know, there was this the distinct contrast between that kind of uh, agricultural uh, production and uh, industrial agriculture, you know, your typical poultry and hogs. But I, I came to the conclusion that uh, those two things are, are intimately related to each other, uh, including and particularly for China. Since the kind of economic liberalization that China has uh, undergone for the past 40 years, 
the exotic food market has become increasingly formalized in the sense that it's not just a local farmer bringing a few things off the truck. I mean, now it's being increasingly capitalized. So some of the money that's uh, backing an increasing uh, industrialization of it, uh, as it were, of these kind of exotic foods is also the money that's backing uh, traditional industrial agriculture. And there's also a kind of economic geography uh, in this as well. As industrial agriculture expands out into the hinterlands, it puts pressure, it's a competition with exotic species on small farms or local farmers having to go deeper and deeper into the the forest regions to be able to uh, obtain the animals they need to supply the, the city markets. In other words, there's a spatial relationship between the two types of production. As the two types actually go more into the forest, then you have an increase in the interface between wild reservoirs. You increase the interface, increase the spillover rate, and uh, as the spillover is directly into humans or into the wild uh, food species or the more industrial species, those animals are subsequently shipped back into the city for processing or direct sale. And so... um, We've developed a kind of a agricultural system in such a way that we have a direct pipeline from the deepest reservoirs of pathogens in the forest directly right into the city. So that's coronavirus. It's a marker of, of how things are operating elsewhere and uh, how the economic geography of agriculture is a direct cause for how these pathogens are emerging. If you're comparing the coronavirus and like the avian flu, for example, I'd just love if you could spell out a little bit more explicitly how you can compare an avian flu that started in like the heart of agribusiness. Maybe we can Mm -hmm. use the example of the avian flu that started in the Midwest, in the American Mm -hmm. Midwest on factory farms. How can you compare something like that with, um, you know, a coronavirus or some other pathogen that is happening sort of on the borders of industrial agriculture? We can compare these pathogens because they are in different parts of the same geography. Your examples uh, apt. The H5N2 influenza that emerged full force here in the Midwest in 2015 emerged out of industrial Turkey and uh, broilers and layers. While coronavirus seems to very much emerge out of bats out in the hinterlands. We have this circuit going on in which pathogens are able to uh, circulate across different host types. So avian influenza can emerge out of um, uh, wild waterfowl. And wild waterfowl, their wetlands are increasingly being destroyed and turned into uh, cropland. And so industrial ag is in the business of destroying the primary environments in which many of these wild animals exist. But many of these animals, they're not uh, rolling over and and dying once their their environment is, is destroyed. They have agency and they make choices and they've decided to move into more agriculture areas to be able to survive and exist. Here in the United States, many of the geese populations used to summer over along the wetlands of the Gulf of Mexico when that wetlands were destroyed and and turned into uh, developments. Geese and other wild waterfowl started to migrate up into all the farms that extend across the Midwest as north of Minnesota. And so their populations increased as they fed on the cropland. You could say the same for for bats in in West Africa. As transnational capital comes in to develop the forest regions for clear-cut mining, for industrial agriculture, many of the host species die off along with their pathogens, but some host species are able to uh, respond well and they make adjustments. 
And so uh, our example is that of palm oil. Uh, many of the frugivore bats, bats who eat fruit, who are also reservoirs for Ebola, made their way into these uh, large palm oil operations. I mean, what's not to like? I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, there's no, no predators. Uh, there's all this space for you to fly between your roosting and forage sites. You also have an increased interface with humans, and so the pathogens that they are hosting increasingly spill over in, into, uh, into the humans. So you have two things going on. One, you have a widening circuit of agricultural production and uh, trade that extends increasingly deeper into the forest and back out into uh, the city. And you also have a change in the ecologies of the host species that were typically confined to the deepest forests and are now being uh, increasingly bumped up against peri-urban regions in which uh, humans are concentrated. And it isn't just bats, it isn't just birds. Mosquitoes are now changing their uh, ecological geographies in such a way that what were previously... uh, Species of mosquitoes that were constrained to wild forests are now making their way into rural areas and even into cities. Yeah, I mean, I think your work on Ebola, specifically with like the policy changes and agribusiness practices that preceded each major Ebola outbreak from the past like what mm. half century, right. really undermines the way we've treated these outbreaks as these like random natural disasters mm. that will just happen. So, can you summarize your findings on Ebola with those outbreaks? and what it says about our disaster response? Right. Well, we looked back into literature and and discovered that every single Ebola outbreak was preceded by an influx of capital. What were ostensibly um, rural smallholder production or or even just agroforestry was uh, foundationally shifted in a way that uh, would unplug the typical ecological relations and re-plug them in different ways what were previously isolated populations of wild reservoirs on one hand, say the bats, and humans, local humans, were put back together in a way that permitted Ebola to spill over at a rate that it hadn't previously. So all the way back to 1976, first outbreak in southern Sudan, you had at the time in uh, 1972, the end of the civil war then, there was an influx of people back into the area, and forest was cut down again for cotton production, rejiggered the ecological relationships, and and increased the interface between the humans and the bats that are the reservoirs for Ebola. And so, all along the way, every almost all the outbreaks that we looked at show that to be the case. And um, Indeed, you can go back uh, through history and find that just about every new pathogen is preceded by these exact kinds of changes. So uh, if you want to go back to the emergence of uh, HIV, some of the phylogeography, uh, looking at the genetics of, of HIV, we're able to pinpoint the origins of SIV, the immunodeficiency virus that spilled over into humans, became HIV emerged out of uh, southeastern Cameroon at a time in which the French and the Germans were competing over the area and turning what was subsistence uh, bushmeat into something that was more of an industry to supply the gangs of workers who were cutting down forest and tapping rubber and shipping all the stuff uh, to the coastline. So there, another example of a changing economic geography that allowed a pathogen that had probably for hundreds of years, if not thousands, spilled over into humans, 
all of a sudden get the epidemiological momentum that it didn't have previous and make its way down into the Congo and subsequently onto the uh, international travel network. Like the natural outgrowth, of course, of these narratives, and we've seen this with coronavirus, we saw it with Ebola too, is these xenophobic, sinophobic, sort of racist characterizations of people's eating habits being to blame. The Chinese are to blame for their culinary habits. If only they didn't Mm. eat bats or um, that Chinese doctors got things wrong. Mm. But beyond the harm that they cause on an individual level, you know, racist Mm. attacks against people who look Asian in England or Italy, what's dangerous about these outbreak narratives? Well, certainly uh, racializing these outbreaks really has a way of dividing us from the critical notion that we are all interrelated at this point in fundamental ways. Uh, In some sense, um, you know, many an epidemiologist has a certain exhaustion coming out of coronavirus, if only because, uh, you know, we've seen this uh, multiple times um, in every effort to uh, raise the alarm to say, hey, we need to change our agricultural practices, change how we interrelate with wild hinterlands, uh, has been largely ignored in part because the entirety of civilization at this point and, and our means of uh, socially reproducing ourselves as a species involves uh, pretending that we can continue to cut into the forests and grow species in a way that uh, select for the most dangerous pathogens and not suffer the consequences of it. You know, we could be doing things differently in a way that could uh, at least strike a detente with these pathogens so that we don't select for the most uh, virulent pathogens that are able to crisscross the world. So, I mean, how? How can we uh, stop yeah. these outbreaks from you yeah, know, yeah, emerging yeah. in the first place if our response now is so lackadaisical? Yes. I mean, it seems yes. like we've learned nothing from a public health perspective since SARS, since Ebola, since yeah. every single one of these. Right. Well, and again, that's one of the dangers of looking at this as individual outbreaks. You know, we, we uh, freak out and worry about the uh, the outbreaks themselves, as we should. And that's what gets at the, the notion that treating this as an emergency is actually absolutely correct. But the problem is, is that we're using the emergencies as a way of avoiding talking about the structural uh, causes for the outbreaks that happened in the first place. And those two things, again, uh, you have your false dichotomy. Those two things are competing with each other in a way that uh, allows the systems that produce the pathogens in the first place to continue on. And, uh, you know, get, don't get me wrong, we should deal with the emergency aspect of it. Um, but the emergencies serve as a way of clearing the room of any other discussion. And that includes the, the structural causes for the outbreaks, in part because there's considerable amount to be gained from keeping the structures in place, at least for some individuals. Uh, agribusiness is one of the most formidable and well-paid uh, uh, sectors of the economy, and they have considerable amount of power. I always joke in a, in a really dark way that um, some of these pathogens have the best lawyers on the planet. Agribusiness uh, has the means and the power to be able to make sure that uh, its practices are not changed, that it can continue to make considerable quarterly profit, but uh, that comes at a considerable cost. Presently, the sector is capable of externalizing its costs, meaning throwing the costs on everybody else in terms of uh, any one of these outbreaks. Uh, you can always blame a virus, right? So we already know that it has nothing to do with the, the agriculture producer, so it's claimed. But, um, you know, if you look at their operations, I couldn't think of a, a better way of growing a virulent pathogen. Here you're, you're stacking in uh, thousands of hog or poultry in uh, a single barn. They're all genetically the same, so there's no diversity to act as a kind of immune firebreak. It makes for easy transmission from uh, hog to hog. It causes immune depression. As these animals aren't allowed to reproduce on site, 
if a deadly pathogen were to come in and there were a few left standing, we would think, okay, those are the the hog that we're going to use to breed the next uh, generation because uh, somehow some trick of their immunogenetics allows them to survive. Well, um, hog and poultry and other uh, industrial livestock are not allowed to breed on site. They don't do that. So we've cut out a major uh, ecosystem service that for us. We've removed natural selection from our ability to control these pathogens and be able to respond to them uh, evolutionarily in, in real time. Um, so what I would do is change agriculture in its entirety. I mean, uh, many uh, smallholders and farmers around the world engage in what's called regenerative agriculture or agroecology, already doing many of these things. They have diverse combinations of livestock and poultry. They allow the animals to reproduce on site. They don't batch them in together in the thousands. And because of the diversity, their animals can act as immune fire breaks. If a pathogen comes and knocks uh, down one herd, because uh, the herds nearby are different, uh, they're unlikely to be as badly infected or, or at all. So you need to reintroduce the kind of uh, geographic diversity uh, in animal production and crop production as well to keep pathogens from being able to ramp up and spread and uh, evolve greater deadliness. Well, what about interventions like genetically modifying chickens to outmaneuver uh, these pathogens? <laughs> Is that feasible? Well, I mean, that's certainly uh, one thing that they're looking at. And, and my take on it is that uh, agribusiness is losing control of the narrative of food. You know, whether it's danger to public health or whether it's the reduction of nutrition in the food that's produced, all of a sudden in the past 20 years, that narrative is no longer in big ag's control. There's a certain kind of adventurism that comes in on the part of agribusiness to try to deal with these increasing problems that up until now they've just been able to externalize onto everybody else. And so you'll have examples of um, attempts to use lasers to keep wild waterfowl from coming uh, onto uh, farms that raise poultry. There's a push toward doing face recognition software for hog. Um, I'm not sure how that's going to help them at all. And genetic modification uh, that you can somehow loop out the receptor site that uh, a pathogen might be able to attach onto a host cell. But what they don't tell you is that um, if indeed we could do that for animals or livestock and a pathogen isn't able to infect the animals, um, well, they're not going to be doing it to us humans. So can still circulate in such a way that it might be able to pop out into to humans. And so what I'm getting at here is that there's so much effort on this kind of venturism, an attempt to try to uh, modify all aspects of animal production except the economic model that's underlying the mass production of industrial poultry and hog. Right. I mean, in a lot of ways, it seems like the technological interventions that are being proposed to fight climate change, let's hmm. change everything but what's actually causing it. Um, or even in the, you know, the health response in China, like you know, hmm. using drones to tell people to put on masks or right. amping up surveillance through technology. Well, maybe if you spent the past couple of decades amping up public health, that could have stopped it too. Oh, absolutely. My take on it is that increasingly public health is a uh, part of the commons that are being spun off and sold, including in the epidemiologies. Uh, even some of the basic information are increasingly being uh, privatized or securitized in the sense of being considered national security. Everyday scientists are having difficulty even discerning uh, where some of the outbreaks are actually happening. 
puts us in a place where the basic uh, commons, what all of us need to do together to deal with a, a public health crisis is being put in danger. Okay, so to close, I mean, what do mm-hmm. you think we should be doing, every one of us, to stop the spread of the coronavirus on an individual level? Uh, on the individual uh, level, we certainly should uh, do our best to stay calm. Clearly, we should wash our hands. If we can, it'd be wonderful to gauge in some self-quarantine if it calls for it. But some of these things aren't possible. I mean, we're, we're at a moment where uh, like many a pandemic, um, a pathogen serves as a mirror for our society. And it shows us that we are ill-prepared in many ways, and not just merely at the level of uh, what this particular administration has done, but more broadly speaking, what uh, modes of production and means by which we organize our society, frankly, around uh, producing profit. Uh, we engaged in and widening the gap between our economies and our ecologies. We are, in essence, selecting for some of the worst possible outcomes so that someone's able to make a buck. And somehow we're going to have to reconnect our ecologies and economies in a way that uh, allows us to continue to uh, draw from nature what we need to survive, but not in such a way that we smash uh, nature and generate the problems of public health exposures or, as you brought up, climate change, so that we can have a situation where we can continue to exist on this planet from generation to generation. Well, that's going to involve certainly much more than merely uh, an individual um, response, as we must most certainly do in terms of getting through this coronavirus. But um, we can't just then bury our head in the sands and just wait for the next emergency. In the end, we'll have to change this. I mean, we'll, there's no way that we can continue to allow a, a means of production that uh, appears uh, on the verge. Uh, if not COVID-19, then it'll be another pathogen that may emerge uh, to kill a billion people. I mean, at some point we have to say, no, we can't do this anymore anymore. Epidemiology can be difficult stuff to parse on a good day, let alone on one where you're washing your hands every 20 minutes and trying not to freak out. We have links in the show notes to some of Rob Wallace's work, including a really clear article he wrote for the Monthly Review that lays out a lot of the arguments he discussed in this episode. We're also going to be publishing a weekly update on our website, theamericanscholar.org, from Philip Alcabiz, a professor of public health. And we've got a link to his first primer on COVID-19 in the show notes as well. Stay safe out there. Stay home if you can. Check in on your loved ones. And as ever, stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 